So, uh, like Tim highlighted, um, uh, my name is Sean. Uh, I work at Northview, um, and I'm very excited to be able to share the word of the Lord with you here today. Uh, you might be wondering, how did I get the privilege to be able to come up here in the first place? Well, um, Pastor Ezra at Northview came to me several weeks ago and said, Sean, would you be willing to be able to preach on this particular weekend? And I said, yeah, for sure. I would love to do that. And then he, then he showed me the passage. And the passage is Luke 18, 15 to 17, and it just so happens that without even focusing on this passage, this has been the very thing on my mind for the last couple of months, we're talking about babies. And uh, that's what our passage is focusing on today, so I've been able to uh, have one hand open with the Bible and one with a crying baby, and, uh, and I've been able to focus on that for the last couple of weeks, and I'm excited to show you um, and, and highlight what, what the Lord's been putting on my heart um, as I've been studying this passage. Um, I realize I'm not an, an expert like some in regards to children yet. I have two months behind me. That's all I've got. But um, the word of the Lord is, uh, is, is sure and is true, and uh, it'll be revealed today as we dive into it. So the, the one big idea that I want us to be uh, coming away from today is that only the humble inherit the kingdom. Only the humble can enter the kingdom of God. And we're going to be looking at this in our passage in two particular points. One is blessing children and then becoming children. Blessing children and becoming children. Like any good preacher, I've snuck in three points into my first, sermon, uh, first point. So we're going to be looking at blessing children and we're going to look at three different ways that we can bless children before we're looking at becoming children. Let's hop into uh, reading our passage in its entirety and then get into our first point. Starting in Luke 18, verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. To begin to understand the weight of this passage, we have to ask ourselves, what is this phrase, kingdom of God? <clears throat> what does that mean? Very simply put, the kingdom of God means the rule and reign of God. That is something that we both experience here and now as believers. We've submitted to God's rule and reign in our lives now but also something that we wait for. We await for the coming kingdom where Christ comes, he returns, and makes all things new. So the kingdom of God is both of those things. And so as we begin to understand that in our passage, we see that this is actually a pretty weighty passage. Jesus says that without, without becoming like a child, you won't be able to enter the kingdom. You won't be able to, you're not going to heaven, you're not relating to God, you're not actually entering into the love and the joy and the blessedness of what God has for you. So this is a big passage. To understand what exactly um, this means, we have to delve in deep. And the place where our passage starts delving in is talking about the very smallest of people. It's talking about even infants, is what our passage says, which is interesting, interesting language to use. Luke's actually drawing this out, saying, guess what, the, the children who were being brought to him, they, they weren't children who can start doing chores around the house and start helping out. No, no, these are infants. These are helpless babies. The reason why that's important is because in the Jewish culture, at that particular time, children were seen as insignificant. They, they weren't useful yet to the kingdom. They, they weren't useful yet, sorry, to, to society. And as such, they were kind of pushed onto the fringe. 
They were weak and helpless and less than. And that is ultimately um, what is very, uh, what, um, what their culture thought, is that children are the least. Children are weak. Children are helpless. And yet, that's the very reason why these parents are seeking to bring their kids to Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, come, bless my child. Pronounce your, your blessing, your strength, your love, your hope over my kids. And that makes sense um, because Jesus, as a rabbi in those days as a teacher, was taking up what was very common for teachers to do, to lay a blessing on people. This is what even the, the patriarchs in the Old Testament would do. This is what Noah uh, did when he blessed uh, Shem and Japheth. This is what Isaac did when he blessed Jacob and Esau. This is what Jacob did with his sons and grandsons, pronouncing a blessing on them. Our, our particular passage says, touch them, but that's, that's the same language for blessing them, laying your hands on and pronouncing that blessing. And it makes sense. As, as a parent, you want to bring your kids to Jesus because you want them to be blessed. And, and what, what parent doesn't want their kids to be blessed? Think back to when I was young um, and the sacrifices that my dad gave for, for me. Um, he wanted me to be blessed. And so as such, he would get five hours a night every night of sleep, and would wake up at three in the morning to be able to drive to Vancouver uh, Airport to be able to do his job so that he could be back by the end of my school so that he could coach all of my sports teams, which happened like every day, right? He wanted to bless me, and so he sacrificed for me. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we see Jesus's blessing as the best blessing? Is being blessed by Jesus the most valuable form of blessing that we could ever have. And this is something that uh, my wife and I um, are currently struggling through, wrestling through, as we plan on going to Uganda. Because Uganda is pretty much the center of all tropical diseases, center of where all of the most poisonous creatures and black mambas want to kill you, and it doesn't have that good of healthcare. So just put, put all those things together, it doesn't make sense so much to say, this is the best place for me to bless my child, is by bringing them to Uganda, this place of danger. And yet, we know that God has called us, and that there is no greater blessing than being in Christ. And we want our child to see that, that we're following Christ. And as we follow Christ, that they will see that that blessing in Jesus is the best blessing. Um, it's, um, I know that it, that seems like a bit of an extreme example, but I actually think that sometimes our day-to-day -day lives of what it means like to, um, to seek to bless our kids is, is actually harder. Um, we were called, as those who are parents in the room, to lead our kids to Jesus as the first and most important task. And I see that there are, in fact, kids here. So for those parents, good work! You brought them to church. That's step one. That's great, right? But that's the first step. That's not the last step. The first step is, yes, get them involved in the church. That's great. But what are we doing at home? How are you introducing your kids to the Word of God? How are you praying for them? I know that on a day-to-day -day basis, sometimes I'm just too tired to even read to my little one. I'm just, oh, I'm trash. I'm so tired. But that is our call, is to introduce our kids, even from a young age, to Jesus. That's the first way that we can bless them. Introduce them to Jesus. Now, it is important for us to recognize, for those who aren't parents here, you might think, well, this, this doesn't apply to me then. 
Um, I'm not a parent. I don't have biological kids. So this, this point of introducing kids to Jesus doesn't apply. But that's actually not true. Um, I have a, a good friend, actually a good friend of my wife as well, um, who uh, used to work at Northview, Kendra Gerbrandt, who now works at Christ City Church. Um, fantastic. And she wrote an article recently, recently for the Gospel Coalition focused around Mother's Day and about uh, what it means to be a single woman um, who wants to bless kids and have kids. And this is what she said. The good news of the gospel is that my desire to be a mother does not have to be repressed because I am barren. It needs to be reimagined with gospel clarity. The blessing of spirituality reproducing those in the faith is available to anyone willing to tell people about God and help them grow in Christ. It's all of our jobs. And interestingly enough, those who are most receptive to the gospel statistically are kids. Um, there was a study done by the National Association of Evangelicals highlighting that um, 63% of those people who come to faith are kids between the age of 4 and 14. Take a look at your life, whether it's your kids, maybe it's your grandkids, it's your nephews or your nieces. Maybe you want to get involved and have more kids in your life and you can help out a soccer camp. Uh, at, at, at not soccer camp, I'm running a soccer camp for Northview. Help out at the camp here. You can come and help out at my church too if you want, just, just to clarify. <laughs> but yeah, helping at camp, whether it's being a camp counselor, whether you're a coach, uh, whether you have neighbors who have kids, we all have the opportunity of loving and investing in them and introducing them to the one who has the greatest blessing, which is Christ. So that's the first way that we can bless kids, introduce them to Jesus. The second way um, gets back to our text here in verse 15. It says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. The disciples' response was to rebuke these parents bringing their kids. They thought of themselves as like bouncers. to say like, no, no further for you. You can't come in. You can't meet Jesus. And, um, and that is uh, actually something that, it, the word that's used, rebuke, is actually really harsh in Greek. It's the same word that is used when, when Jesus says that he like rebukes demons. That's the word that's used, right? Like they're like, they're pushing back hard against these parents who are trying to bring their kids to Jesus. Now, the text doesn't say why they're stopping them from coming. Um, it could be that they had believed the cultural lie that, you know, that kids are less significant. And so they're like, ah, you know, don't bring the kids in. We want to bring, you know, let's bring in the adults. A baby? Why would you bring a baby to be blessed? They won't even remember the blessing, right? So let's bring the adults in because they can hear, they can understand. But that was not the way that Jesus thought about it. In fact, he responds quite strongly. Um, there's a parallel passage to our passage in Luke 18, found in Mark 13, no, Mark 10, 13 to 16. So we're going to take a look at that, because that gives a few more details to what our interaction is in our text. This is what it reads. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them or bless them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. I mean, he was angry, he was furious, and said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Jesus gets angry 
His response was being indignant, was being furious. Um, and so he turns the rebuke of the disciples to the parents, and he begins to rebuke the disciples. Now, it might seem strange to us that in the same phrase, like almost like the same sentence, Jesus is both furious and tender. <laughs> that he's angry towards the disciples and yet so gentle and welcoming to these kids. Now, we understand generally that to be welcoming and to be gentle, like those are good things that as Christians we should walk in. But to be angry, this almost seems like something like, isn't being angry a, a sin? Isn't that bad? Um, we take a look at passages like James 1.20 that highlights that uh, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We say, okay, it's good. Generally, the scriptures encourage us, don't be people that are filled with anger. And yet, we see particular times in the scriptures, here and when Jesus flips over the tables in the temple, where there's actual anger involved. And that's because that's not, an, that's not the anger of man, that's the righteous anger of God. Um, and Jesus is angry. Why? Well, see, he's angry because he sees those who are defenseless, those who are weak, these children who do not have a voice, who want to come to him and are being hindered, who want to meet Jesus and be stopped, who want to be blessed and are being refused blessing. That makes Jesus angry. See, infants can't talk or, or vouch for themselves so Jesus sees that these who are the least are being rejected and they're being rejected in such a way that the disciples should have known better. See, the parable right before the, our passage today, the one that David preached on last week about the Pharisee, the self-righteous Pharisee and the, the, the tax collector who is a sinner, highlighted the very point that the disciples should have known. You see, the disciples have taken on the mentality of the Pharisee. They said, the children... They're not like me. As adults, we're better. Children, ah, they're not worthy. Leave the children off to the side. They need to become like us before they can meet with Jesus. But Jesus rebukes them for that mentality. He says, no, that is not the way of the kingdom. That he loves them and he calls them his own. Come to me. Come here. You see, in the Jewish culture, Children were seen as less. Now, my wife and I recently, uh, just last week, we went to, uh, sorry, actually this week, earlier on in this week, we went to a retreat on Keats Island, Camp Barnabas. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, and when we were there, we brought our seven-week-old, um, and people were just, you know, fawning all over. Just loved her. Oh, can I hold her? Can I hold her? Right? She's exceedingly cute, at least that is what I think. Um, and these other people verified that. She is, in fact, adorable, and they wanted to hold her. So we might think, oh, okay, well, that isn't in our culture. Like, we don't put children down like that. We can see the love, right? We don't put children down. But actually, our culture is far worse um, because roll back the clock just a little bit, and we see how our culture um, discriminates quite strongly against the unborn. Our culture sees the unborn as those who are merely clumps of cells, not people at all, to be discarded at the will of anyone who wishes. Um, sadly, half of Canadians think that abortions should be allowed at any time during pregnancy, all the way up to delivery. Only 8% think that abortion is never the answer. 
Um, this results in tens of thousands of little babies being killed every year. One in six women um, choose to have an abortion. I want you to imagine this for a second. Um, for those of you who have kids or who uh, um, love uh, nieces or nephews, I want you to imagine that you and that your kid, every day, every hour of every day, is being killed by someone else. What would that make you feel? You would be furious. You would do anything to stop that. These are your children who are being killed. That is exactly how God feels. These are his children. And they're being killed for convenience. This is not acceptable. And it breaks God's heart. It says in Psalm 139 that he knits babies together in their mother's womb. He created them. He made them. They are his first and foremost. But his heart breaks not just because he made them, but because Jesus himself was a kid. The glory of the story of Christianity is that God became a baby. God became a helpless baby to someone who in our culture would be very tempted to abort it. She was a teenager, Mary was. (laughs) Someone who wasn't yet married someone who would have had the extreme discrimination of the culture around her, it would have been so much easier for her to abort. But she didn't. And the child that she carried is the one who can save our world and who has saved us. This is his story. He was a baby. And for all of those kids who are here, I want to highlight that God knows your story, not just because he's God, not just because he knows everything, but because Jesus was actually a kid. He knows what it's like to be a kid. And he has made childhood holy because he is holy, because he walked that path before you. God cares for his kids and he protects them. I think of um, a time when I was in Glacier National Park um, hiking, I love backpacking, I love getting into the outdoors, and we're hiking, it, it was, it's in Montana, uh, my dad and I were hiking, and you know, you normally when you hike, you don't hike to like go and like hang around a large group of people, you kind of hike to escape people. So like we're hiking, and then we notice this large group of people standing on this, on this trail, and we're like, oh, okay, like what, what's going on here? This is weird. Um, as we stop, we realize that there is a big mama grizzly with her little cub, <laughs> walking down the trail towards us. I'm like, okay, I understand. We don't want to test those grounds there. You don't want to get between a mama bear and her cub, right? You, you don't want to do that. That's not going to end well for you. I think of that like God. God wants to protect his children, and he puts the task on us as well to protect his children. If Jesus is indignant, is angry because somebody puts children down, we should be stirred up when people are not just putting them down, but laying them in their graves. This is something that should touch our hearts. And so the second way that we're called to bless children is to defend them, to defend their lives, to defend them when they're put away, discriminated against. We're called to stand up for them, even as Jesus does here. 
But we're not just called to defend them. One of the best ways we can defend them is by welcoming them. I was chatting with um, some of the staff here, and we recognized that, again, if one in six women have had an abortion, then there are likely some in this room who have as well. And there are likely some here right now who are maybe even asking that question, maybe feeling stuck, maybe saying, man, I just, like, it would be so much easier if I didn't have this little one. We want to reach out to you. We don't just want to show love to the baby and defend the baby. We want to reach out to you and say, this church is here to support you. This church is here to help you financially. This church is here to come around you as a community and love you through this hardship because we care about God's children and we care about you. So please come. Have a conversation with Tim or any of the other staff. They're here to support you. Our call to defend is also a call to welcome. And that's what our next verse is in Luke 18, 16. It says, but Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. See, Jesus calls them in, he welcomes them, he blesses them, and he places a significant amount of importance on what it means to welcome children. In uh, Mark uh, 9.37, he says it this way, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. When we welcome children, when we bless them, when we love on them and care for them, when, when we pour ourselves into kids in the name of Christ, what we're actually doing is we're loving and showing that directly to our Heavenly Father. That's because our Heavenly Father is intimately concerned with the least and the lost. He's concerned with those who are weak and helpless. He is desperately desiring to love on those people, and he wants us as his people to do the same. There was, um, uh, there's a pastor, uh, Pastor Robert is his name, and when my wife and I head to Uganda at the beginning part of next year, uh, we're going to be working under him. Uh, he's a national leader there in Uganda, and he has a ministry called King's Kids. This particular ministry was started in a quite miraculous way. So he was away on a, a ministry trip, and um, and someone um, in Mitsiana, which is where I'll be going, um, heard cries. And the cries that they heard were from a newborn who had been wrapped in a plastic bag and thrown into a latrine, um, an outhouse, 30 feet down. And they had heard these cries. And so they, as a community, gather together. They take this baby out. They bring this baby to the hospital. Um, it doesn't look very good for the baby. Don't know if she's going to be able to make it. And Esther, Robert's wife, calls him and says, I feel like the Lord is asking us to, to bring this baby home. Um, and he says, do what, the God, do what God's telling you to do. And so they bring this baby home. Um, it just so happened that by being in human waste, uh, she was blind. Uh, she, she couldn't see. Um, and after a year and a half, um, the Lord miraculously healed her when she was in a worship service. And it is through this process, her name was Grace, and is Grace, and it is the starting of bringing in of this child into their home that actually made their whole ministry flourish. Because not only have they adopted and brought in many more people, I think they have like 10 in their family, um, but 
their ministry, which is connecting and teaching uh, an elementary school for underprivileged kids where they bring these kids in who don't have homes and stuff, and then they teach them. This whole ministry started from them welcoming children in. And that's what we're called to do. For some of us in this room, it might very practically be adopting a child. Sometimes we think, oh, okay, I don't have kids, and so, again, it doesn't really apply to me. But to adopt a child is to understand the very heart of God. God adopted us in Christ. He chose us, even though we were broken and seeking after other things, he adopted us into his family. What greater way could we speak of love than by adopting children? Others, it might not be adoption, but the call of welcoming children, loving children, pouring into children is for all of us here. So how do we bless kids? Well, we introduce them to Jesus, we defend them, and we welcome them. That's point number one. Point number two, um, moving on, we're going to be taking a look at verse 16, 16 and 17 about becoming children. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus goes from highlighting the value of children to saying that all of us need to become like children. So for the kids in this room, the cool thing is is that this isn't a passage about you growing up to be an adult. This is a passage about adults becoming more like you. You have something to teach the adults in the room. And that's pretty cool. Instead of a child needing to say, oh, I need to mature, this is about, uh, this is about uh, adults maturing by being childlike. Now, it's important that as we look at this verse, we, we, we really take a look at the language. Um, in, uh, in verse 16, it's very clear that God's kingdom doesn't belong to children. It belongs to those who are like children, to such as children. This is an important distinction because we could make the error and think, okay, God's kingdom belongs to children, which either means that all of the adults in the room are messed, we can't enter God's kingdom, which is not the case, or it could mean, oh, well, somehow there's something innately good about children. This passage is not saying that children are without sin. Children are still sinful. Um, that's a doctrine of original sin, and we recognize that. When I look into the, into the, the face of my little baby girl... I think, okay, wow, there are times where I'm like, okay, she's looking pretty perfect right now. But I fully recognize that as the terrible twos and tantrum threes come along, like that selfishness is going to show itself fully. That children are still sinful. But there's some aspect in association with being childlike that we are supposed to be imitating. What is that? Uh, unfortunately, our, our passage doesn't immediately seem to reveal what that childlikeness is that we're supposed to embrace. But when you take a look at the broader context of the parable before and the parable that we're going to get next week, it becomes a little bit clearer and then is especially emphasized in Matthew 18, 1 to 4, which is a text that we're going to look at now. But what it is about this childlikeness that we're supposed to be imitating. So Matthew 18, 1 to 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling uh, to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself 
like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom. Humility is the aspect of childlikeness that we must embrace if we are going to enter the kingdom of God. St. Augustine once um, was asked a question, and um, he said, if you ask me the essential thing in the religion and discipline of Jesus Christ is, I shall reply, first, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. Humility is absolutely foundational for what it means to know God. But humility is a multifaceted diamond that needs a whole sermon series to really unpack the nature of humility. So we want to focus in on what aspect of humility do children have? What aspect of humility do children have? Uh, Rick Warren once, once highlighted uh, humility, one of the aspects of humility, as not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Humility is thinking more of others. Now, if this definition is true, then when we take a look at kids, kids are actually pretty selfish. Uh, most of the parents in the room, they're like, mm, yeah, that's true, right? Kids are pretty selfish, especially uh, when they're young. I take a look at my little one, and I think, she doesn't like, oh, wow, you know, my parents are kind of tired right now. I think I'm just going to, you know, kind of relax and uh, let them chill. I don't want to cry right now because that might be a little bit much for them. No, she cries. She says, I need food. Give it to me now. Right? She is thinking about her own needs. She's selfish at this stage, um, as she should be, thinking about her own needs. But if that's true, then children wouldn't be seen as, as humble. But there is an aspect, an aspect that, I see in no greater place than in my child about how she is humble. And that, that is of dependence. Humble people know that they need help. Humble people know that they are dependent and cannot do it on their own. And my child is very dependent. She cries, and when she cries, she's telling me, I need a bottle, or bring me to mommy now. <laughs> She knows that she needs help, that she cannot do it. And she cries and cries saying, I need you. I need you to satisfy my need. That is the kind of dependence that we need to embrace as adults. Saying, God, I need you. I cannot do it on my own. You are the only one to satisfy me. We need to humble ourselves and be lowly and recognize the fact that we, need depend, that we are dependent and need God. Now, it, it's, it's interesting because sometimes we think, okay, I, I need to become dependent or I need to become lowly. But actually, it's more accurate to say that we need to recognize that we are already dependent, that we are already lowly. You see, God sees all of us as completely and utterly dependent on him. Every breath that we take comes because he gives it to us. We are absolutely dependent on him for every breath that we take, for every heartbeat that we have, every day that we awake, every sunrise that there is, is dependent upon our all-powerful, almighty God. We are dependent on him. We're dependent on him not just for our body, but for our soul. There's no way that we can earn this great salvation. We're just not good enough. But Christ has provided the way for us to be saved and enter into the kingdom. 
We cannot do it on our own. So being humble is simply about recognizing the state of our dependence upon God. It's acknowledging the fact we need him to live. We must lay down our prideful autonomy and our independence if we're ever going to enter God's kingdom. And that's because pride exalts self while humility exalts God. And we're entering into his kingdom. And guess what? In his kingdom, there's only going to be one king. And it isn't going to be you or I. So we have to humble ourselves. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So we must become children by recognizing our dependence on God. Even on a human level, we must recognize that we are not completely independent. If the pandemic taught us anything, it was that we were made to be together, that it's hard being apart, and that we're actually dependent on others for our well-being. But just in case that big lesson wasn't one that you picked up in the pandemic, we have another one right here, okay? So if you have a phone, I want you to take your phone, I want you to hold it up in the air, okay? If you have a phone, hold it up in the air, great. So taking a look at just how dependent we are, even in relation to our phones, the glass that is on the front of your phone is specially hardened typed. It's made of quartz, which may have come from the USA, and aluminum, which probably comes from Australia. It's then treated with potassium salts, likely from Canada, for scratch resistance, it's given a coating made of iridium from South Korea and tin from Indonesia. The colors on the screen come from rare earth elements, mostly in China. Its microelectronics could include copper from Chile, silver from Mexico, platinum from South Africa, and tungsten from Russia. Its tiny capacitors use tantalum from Central Africa or Brazil. Your phone's rechargeable battery is made of lithium, which may have come from Argentina, cobalt from the Congo or Zambia, and pure graphite from India. Petroleum is used to make these phones and then ship them wherever else in the world. If even one of these countries, one of these places withholds an aspect, it affects us all. We are so dependent on other people. From the food that we eat, from the electricity that we have, from the clothes that you're wearing that you didn't make, that each of these things shows that we are utterly dependent on people, but even more dependent on God. He is the source of all life. Without him, nothing would exist. Described in Colossians that he is the sustainer of all of us. We are dependent on him. Jesus reminds us of this in John 15, 5, where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. This is why we need to recognize our dependence and become like a humble child. Now, I recognize that cultivating this in our culture, which elevates independence, is a hard, hard thing. But the kingdom of God is at stake. The door to enter the kingdom is a low door, and we need to bow down to enter it. And when we do, we recognize that we will be exalted. 
So you see, the road to exaltation is humiliation. Like the passage, the very end verse from last week, if you remember, it says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is the one who walked this path for us. He's rebuking his disciples for not being humble, for, for not showing their dependence. He's rebuking them and saying, you need to be like children. Understand your dependency, your weakness. You need to walk the road of humility. And Jesus shows us exactly what that looks like. See, Jesus, the one who is self-sufficient, the one who needed nothing and no one, being one in the Trinity, comes down in the form of a helpless little baby, <laughs> comes and lives a life of humility, dies on a cross, and then is exalted above the name of every other name. This is what our passage in Philippians 3, no, 2, 3 to 11 says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. And so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under, under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The path to exaltation in the kingdom of God is humility. Only the humble enter the kingdom. It's a hard path, but it's a path that Christ walks with us. We cannot do it alone. We cannot lay aside the idol of independence, of thinking that we are the best and we are sufficient and that my finances come from what I do and that I am the one who is in control. It's hard laying that down. But with Christ beside us, we can do it. See, Jesus offers this path to the kingdom to those who recognize that they are weak and needy and dependent on him. And praise the Lord that that includes you and me. Because it isn't your virtue that puts you in the kingdom. It's your need that qualifies you to enter. It is our dependence and our recognition of our dependence that allows God to invite us in. You see, you might be thinking, I, there's, there's no way that I, 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 could ever, I could ever enter the kingdom. I've, I've done too many bad things. I haven't, I haven't been a good parent. I've actually hindered my kids from coming to faith. You don't know the kinds of things that, that I was involved in, the kind of bad parenting that I was involved in when my kids were young. You might say, oh, man, I, I was actually, I'm actually one of those people who got an abortion in my younger days. You might be thinking, man, you, you don't know the pride that I live in. You don't know my own self-righteousness, my spirit of religiosity. You don't know this. But let me tell you that it is not only the children in our passage, the physical children, that God welcomes in. It is all of us. We can become his children. We can be, know him as Abba Father when we choose to humble ourselves and come to him recognizing our dependence. He's waiting. He's waiting to forgive. He's waiting to welcome us and defend us. He's waiting 
to love on us in such a lavish way, to hold us close and to bless us. Let us lay down our pride and come to him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you not as those who have it all figured out. We desperately need you. Every hour we need you. You are our one defense. You are our righteousness. Oh God, how we need you. Show us just how much we depend on you. Show us our lowly position. And as you do that, Father, I pray that we would live in light and do the same to others. That we would love on the lowly, on the least, on the weak, on the broken. That we would love on kids and show them who you are by how we live. Help us to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.